and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon.
Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. morning. Welcome to worship at North Decatur Presbyterian Church. Whoever you are, whatever your age or your skin color or your political affiliation or your sexual orientation, however God made you, we are all brought by the same spirit to be in this place to learn how to love God and love each other. Welcome to worship today. My name is David Lewicki. I'm one of the pastors of this congregation. It's my privilege to welcome you today. I'm I'm glad to see all of you. Uh, I want to also extend a welcome to those who are joining us for worship online today. Good morning to all of you. Uh, If you are in the center aisle, if you would uh, check and see if there is a welcome pad near you. If there is, grab it and sign your name and send it down the row. It's one of the ways that we greet each other. It's also one of the ways that visitors are encouraged to leave us your information to find out more about the church. Uh, For those of you that are worshiping online, please feel free to put your name in the chat and introduce yourself and let us know where you're worshiping from today. Uh, We're glad to see visitors uh, and glad to have visitors online. We're doing something new at North Decatur Presbyterian Church, which is we are Uh, organizing our first inquirers class for virtual members Uh, because we have a number of folks who are with us every single week online uh, but who are never here in person. Uh, We know that some of these folks are uh, hopefully uh, making North Decatur their church home. So if you are watching online today and you're interested in becoming a member of North Decatur Presbyterian, please email myself, david at ndpc.org or beth at ndpc.org. Introduce yourself Maybe we can find some time together over video. Uh, We'd love to invite you. That class will be in November, that virtual inquirers class. We also have a a real-life, in-person inquirers class. Uh, For those of you who are visitors who are considering membership, that'll happen the second Sunday in November. Uh, So uh, certainly you're invited to that, those of you who are visiting. Uh, I want to say thanks for continuing to wear your masks today. We're close to lifting, I think, the mask mandate in worship. Uh, DeKalb County has dropped... Uh, the COVID spread level to low, uh, which is a really good sign for all of us, Uh, encouraging all of you, if you haven't been infected or uh, had a booster in six months, uh, it's time to go ahead and get a booster. Uh, It is the best way to protect ourselves and to keep others safe as well. Uh, Thanks for wearing your name tags. Uh, It really helps uh, for us to be able to identify, especially as long as half of our face is obscured. Having a name tag is really valuable. Uh, Some of us have known each other for 40 or 50 years. Uh, Some of us have known each other for like five minutes. Uh, So wearing a name tag really helps us get to know one another by name. So thank you for doing that. You might notice that I have a few announcements today, uh, and you're dying to know what's happening. Uh, First thing I want to say is that we are taking reservations this week for the Sage's Lunch on October 11th. Uh, That's another couple of Tuesdays away but we'd love for you to have your reservations in this week. Uh, It is our Sage's Lunch. It is specifically for senior adults, but it is not only for senior adults. Everyone is welcome to come. This morning, my sermon is the second sermon in this year-long series on our annual theme. Does anyone know what our annual theme is? Be, be, being. We're going to talk about being Again, today, a couple weeks ago, we we read the story of Moses at the burning bush and God saying, I am, my name is I am. 
So there's another good story coming today about being. This one is from the book of Acts. Many of you know that the Luke's gospel was written in two parts, not one, but two. There are two parts to Luke's gospel. The first one, called Luke, is the story of Jesus. And the second part of Luke's gospel is called the Acts of the Apostles. And it's the story of the early church and how those first people who followed Jesus tried to make sense of what it meant. In Acts, the main character is the Holy Spirit, right? Because it's the Holy Spirit that comes at Pentecost and gets everybody up and out of their seat and moves them out into the world. And Acts is the story about what happens when the Spirit moves us out of the church and into the world. So today's story is about one of those people named Paul who was pushed by the Spirit into the world to meet people and talk to people. And Paul is a wild character. He causes a lot of trouble. Uh, And this is one of the stories about Paul from the 17th chapter. And Paul is in a a place called Athens. Any of you know where Athens is? It's still a city. Where's Athens? It's in a country called Greece, right? It's It's in Greece. Oh, there's an Athens, Georgia, by the way, which is the one you're thinking of, and you are spot on. And that one was named after this place in Greece, which is a little bit older, like about a couple thousand years older than the one in Georgia. Okay, so Paul's in Athens, and Athens is famous because it's the home of philosophers, thinkers, people the name of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and the Cynic philosophers and the Stoics and the Epicurean, brilliant people talking and sharing ideas. What the heck is Paul doing in Athens? Well, let's read the story and find out. All right, here we go. While Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue, and Paul argued a lot. I'm just going to say that. He argued in the synagogue with the Jewish folks and the devout persons and also in the marketplace. Every day, Paul argued with those who happened to be there. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some of them said, what does this pretentious babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. That was because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and about the resurrection. So they took Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus, which was a big public place where people exchanged ideas. And they asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds a little strange to us, so we'd like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing about new things. So Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar, and it said to an unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, God who is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in shrines that are made by human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though God needed anything, since it's God who gives to all human beings our life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, God made all people to inhabit the whole earth. God made the times of our existence and the boundaries of the places where we live so that every one of us would search for God and fumble about for God and even find God. Though indeed, God is not far from any one of us. For in God... We live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, we too are God's offspring. And since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that it's the deity is like gold or silver or stone. God is not an image formed in the art and imagination of human beings. God has overlooked the times of human ignorance. And now God commands all people everywhere to turn. God has fixed a day on which God will judge the world in righteousness by the one whom God has appointed. And of this, God has given assurance to all of us by raising that one from the dead. Now, when they heard, those Athenians about the resurrection of the dead, some of them scoffed and dismissed him. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined Paul, and they became followers of the way, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, as well as some others with them. That's the story of Paul in Athens. That is the word of God. It is for us, the people of God, we say, thank you, God. Paul is in Athens. He has just escaped from jail. He was in jail in Philippi because he had made some more people angry. He always is making people angry. He escapes uh, by a miracle, frankly. Uh, Everywhere Paul goes, he manages to agitate people. So here Paul is in Athens. He should be laying low. He should be in like a witness protection program. But he can't help himself. His lips always seem to start moving. But unlike in so many other places where Paul traveled and he was met by anger and rage at the people, by the people he met, in no small part because of the way Paul presented himself, in Athens, Paul finds a different response. Athens is a different kind of city, a city with a DNA for entertaining new ideas. And Paul, oh, by the way, has a really new idea about a guy that the Romans just recently killed who was actually God. I hate to give him so much credit, but Paul does a darn good job in Athens talking about God. 
He begins, you probably heard, by flattering the Athenians, by kind of fluffing them up a little bit. I see how spiritual you all are in every single way. He connects with them through a kind of a natural theology, inviting them to feel the ordered grandeur of the universe and to see how nature points to God. Then he says there is this spiritual hunger that is woven into our human condition. We are seemingly made, Paul says, to fumble about for God. How many of you identify with that expression? Amen? But even while we are searching for God, Paul says, the truth is that God is already near. Paul concludes by saying that The unknown God is not unknown at all. God is deeply personal for each of us. God knows us. God stands even at this very moment ready to judge us. God expects us to turn, to repent. But we need not be afraid, Paul says. Our righteousness is assured by the one whom God raised from the dead. It's a good little sermon. But part of me has always been uncomfortable with this story, in large part because of the way Christians have tended to read it. So many uh, uh, Christians have read this story and sort of treat it as proof that the gospel is right And every secular philosophy, every wisdom tradition, every non-Christian religion is wrong. Interpreters have tried to draw the connection to the present moment by saying things like, oh, look at those cosmopolitan Athenians. They're just like us moderns. They were adrift and, and desperate for meaning in their lives, and they tried to find it in Epicureanism and keto diets and yoga practices, all of that was false and hollow and bankrupt until Paul showed up and proclaimed the gospel. I don't like that reading of this text. I think it's harmful. I think it plays into an idea that Christianity is an idea, one that can be conveyed simply through a man's voice. It suggests that Christianity is an argument that can and should be debated with others in the public square. I think this false interpretation has fed too many Christians to practice the morally suspect Pauline tradition of apologetics. Christianity is not an idea to be debated. It is not an argument that can be won. Christianity is a way It is a way of being in the world. Christianity is a quality of human presence and divine presence. 
Christianity is the practice. And by practice, I mean the repeated, disciplined embodiment of humility and mercy. The way of Jesus is putting your body and your soul into the act of serving another human body and soul. The way of Jesus is a lifelong pursuit toward the integration of body, mind, and spirit in the service of love. One of the great things about the book of Acts, and I hope you will pick it up again this week and read some or all of it, one of the great things about Acts is that when you read this book, you will find in it story after story of very personal and often very intimate encounters between human beings. Philip and a eunuch from Ethiopia Peter, and a Roman soldier named Cornelius. Paul, and his jailer in Acts 16. In these human encounters, we can see the love that is the energy of our tradition moving from one body into another body. It's this being with one another in a spirit of love that is the power of God. It is not a dude on a soapbox. As uncomfortable as this text makes me in the way that it's been used in our tradition, I want to still confess that I also love it. I've always suspected that it's Luke's artistry in the text that I admire most. Luke somehow finds a way of making even Paul look good to me. Luke has Paul use this marvelous phrase in the middle of his sermon, in God we live and move and have our being. It's actually a quote from a 6th century BCE Greek philosopher. It's also one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Some of you who have heard me pray know that I almost always start my own prayers with God in you we live and move and have our being. What an extraordinary and what a revelatory affirmation that is. It affirms that at the very heart of me, at the core of me, the substance of who I am, that substance is not exclusively mine. I am in God. That, I think, is a very powerful and even a countercultural thing to affirm. 
in our nation's way of looking at human beings, in the ontology of the American culture. We're told in so many ways that the individual is sovereign. I am the king of myself. I am my own. No one of you can tell me what to do. No one can make a claim on me. It is inevitable that spirituality in a culture like ours will become a project of self-fulfillment. Now, I'm not against fulfillment. I'm actually a big fan of fulfillment. Like, I want fulfillment, and I want you to feel fulfilled in your life. But I am suspicious that fulfillment can ever come from the self. I believe the healthiest and truest and most honest confession we ever make is I am not just my own. Your being, your experience of you, the never before and never again mix of self that is made up of your consciousness and your culture and your biology and your spirit, this sacred once in a forever mix of stuff that is you, that you is not exclusively yours. I didn't make me. The way I made, the way my pieces fit together, none of this was my idea. The world in which you and I are placed, the way everything is here to meet our needs, air and water and food and friendship, this wasn't my grand idea. My being is derived. My being comes from somewhere else. Our being comes to us from outside of us. Our tradition affirms again and again and again that our being comes from God. God who is being itself. Our tradition also affirms that God who is the source of being, is love. It's a simple idea, right? It's a very simple idea that being itself is relational. That idea is the beginning and the bedrock of faith. If we know that we are not alone, 
then we find ourselves, as all of you have, just like the Athenians found themselves, we find ourselves searching and fumbling after the other. Searching and fumbling after God. The relational nature of our being is not only the beginning and the foundation of faith, It is the beginning and foundation of our ethical relationships. We know that we come into our being. We come into ourselves through each other. There is no self that is not a self in relationship. Every way that you and I have of making sense of ourselves and of the world, language, culture, ideas, art, all of it is social and relational in nature. It requires that we engage with each other, that we cooperate with each other, that we learn from each other, that we be with each other. You are not exclusively your own. But that statement is not a negation of you. It is an affirmation that the truth of your being, the truth of your being, can be found in me. The truth of my being is found in you. And the truth of our being is in the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Let the church say, amen.